Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. The Gospel appointed for the first Sunday in Advent deals with the royal office of Jesus Christ. We learned in catechism class that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. We also learned in our catechism classes how Christ the King rules a threefold kingdom. There is the kingdom of power, where Jesus rules over the entire universe for our benefit. There is the kingdom of glory, where we see Christ ruling forever over angels, archangels, and the church triumphant. And we'll hear more about this kingdom next week in Advent 2. But today, our text focuses on Christ's kingdom of grace. This kingdom is not of this world. This kingdom, the church militant, doesn't fight with warheads, but with words. This kingdom has no earthly perimeter, but is found where Christ's word is preached purely. Today, we learn about this kingdom of grace. Today, we learn that the Lord comes in a lowly way to his needy people. So first, we're going to talk about that the Lord comes. Second, we'll talk about the manner of the Lord's coming. And finally, we'll talk about to whom does the Lord come. The Lord comes. This is nothing new in the history of religions. The Greek gods were known for their visitation of mortals, from Lycaon and his 50 sons to Philemon and Baucis. Odin, the king of the Norse gods, visited the evil king Giroth in the guise of Grimnir. The avatars of Vishnu have formed the basis of Indian literature and have influenced the 1960s cult Hare Krishna. Even in the book of Acts, we see that the people of Lystra believe that Barnabas and Paul were divine beings. They cry out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The divine comes. Everybody knows it. What if we burn away all of the evil, demon-worshipping claptrap and all of the human delusions? We see at the bottom of all of these things something true. We see that the divine comes to judge and often to punish. Lycian, because of his wickedness, was changed into a wolf. That's where we get the Greek name for werewolf. Lycanthropy. Odin punishes Giroth for breaking the laws of hospitality. And even the avatars of the Indian god Vishnu come when righteousness wanes and the cosmos is in danger. Why do all of these religions teach the same thing? Well, the foundation for the notion that God comes is derived, albeit broken and distorted, from the preaching of the pre-flood patriarch Enoch. We hear about some of Enoch's preaching in, the, in uh, the epistle of Jude, where it says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things 
which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The Lord comes. We pray for it. We confidently hope for it. But do we really want the Lord to come? Think about it. Peter begged Jesus to go away because, Jesus, because Peter was a sinner. The patriarch Job, in all of his sufferings, longs to be hidden in the grave until God's anger passes. The people of the Gardenes region beg Jesus to depart from their lands after they see the cleansing of a demoniac and the destruction of all those swine. We know what the book of Revelation says about the coming of Christ. It says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who indeed is able to stand the coming of the Lord? Who may abide the day of his coming? If the holy God punishes unholy people, then we're in trouble. Paul, in the epistle text for today, commands us to put off the works of darkness. We Christians are to live not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. And in these words, Paul condemns the three great sins of his society and ours, intemperance, impurity, and discord. Now, it doesn't take long to find these sins in our own lives. I mean, really, how many people here went into turkey comas or drank a little too much at Thanksgiving or during other holidays? That's what Paul condemns when he condemns revelry and drunkenness. Lewdness and lust are sins against the Sixth Commandment, whether done with the heart, the eyes, or the body. In our society, inundated with pornography, provocative dressing, and the like, certainly entices the Christian to sins that we call sins against the body. Strife and envy are varied forms of this venomous feeling between man and man. It's a reversal and a corruption of the law of love. Children of God cannot take part in quarrels or wranglings or rivalries. We are not to participate in discord of any kind. And if we do not put off but practice these works of darkness, then the coming of the Lord will be a fearful thing for us. So how is the Lord's coming not a fearful thing for us? The Lord's coming is not fearful because of the manner in which he comes. Prophet Zechariah wrote those precious words 500 years before our Lord's birth, before his coming in the flesh. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. What does this mean? 
This means that the manner of our Lord's coming is not a coming in power or terror. He does not come to drive us mad and destroy us for our sins, as the demon Dionysus did to the city of Thebes. He does not come with power and authority, with 12 legions of angels, or a fiery horse and chariot, or with the thunderous battle bow. Here, in this text, the Lord Christ dispels any fleshly, vulgar, messianic hopes. He comes not in the manner of a conqueror, but upon a lowly donkey. He comes not to make war, but to speak peace, not only to the lost sheep of Israel, but also to the heathen nations. He comes meekly and lowly of heart, as if to say to us today, I come to you, my people, for your benefit, for your peace. I come to you, not in wrath, but in mercy. I come to you today to give you eternal peace and joy. I come voluntarily to bear your sins and to be your Savior. No merit of yours coerced me from my throne on high. I come to you freely, weak and wasted, humble and humiliated. I come for your good to be the true Zedekiah, the true, the Lord is your righteousness. Where the last king failed, time and time again in being righteous, I, your eternal king, succeed, and I give you that righteousness. Where that last king rejected the voice of the prophets, especially Jeremiah, I come to fulfill the words which I caused to be written through him. I come, dear people, so rejoice and be glad for Judah will be saved, and Israel will now dwell securely in my everlasting embrace. An everlasting embrace. Whom does our Lord embrace? To whom does our Lord come in all meekness and poverty and lowliness? Today we see that the Lord comes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem known by the prophet as Aholabah. Jerusalem, the spiritual harlot, who in her harlotry is more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage of sin with her children. Jerusalem, whose feet are crimson with the blood of the prophets, whose hands are swift to stone those who are sent to her for her good to this dirty, murderous, bloodthirsty harlot, the Lord comes. And assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. And they do. The crowds full of need cry out, Hosanna, save us now, Lord. And this cry for help has been transfigured into an ejaculation of praise. For the stone which the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The Lord comes to give light by being bound by love to the altar of the cross. And so blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For the Lord is now your God, and you praise him for all of his marvelous works. 
hearts of stone, transformed into hearts of flesh by our Lord's lowly coming, now cry out for all to hear. The murderers of the prophets become the martyrs of the faith. Saul's become Paul's. Former blasphemers bless the one who comes because he comes to save us. He comes to save us. And even today he comes, lowly in heart and poor in spirit. With every grace and with every blessing, the Lord comes to us today, not riding upon a donkey, but riding upon another oppressed and mistreated beast of burden. The Word. Oh, how God's spoken and written Word is like that poor donkey. Today, the Word is unjustly beaten by the greedy Balaams of this world. Today, the strong foals of the words, like the patriarch Issachar, are tempted by the pleasures of this age and become a band of slaves thereby. Today, the word is unequally yoked with the bulls of Bashan who tyrannize the faithful with political force. In modern philosophy and theology, the word is even subjected to a donkey's burial, unmourned, dragged out, and cast out of the gates of Jerusalem. But even a dead donkey is powerful. Samson slew a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. The word we possess is not dead or dried up, but it is living and it is active, cleaving not only flesh but soul and spirit as well. And though maligned, hated, and persecuted because of its lowliness, the word still accomplishes that the purpose for which our Lord sent it. The word is still the vehicle of our Lord's lowly coming. Today, through lowly words, the Lord Jesus comes here, and he comes to forgive you of all of your sins, so that you might be delivered from this present evil age. And for those who cry out, Hosanna, that is, save us now, they shall get exactly what they ask for. Those with crimson hands shall be washed clean with hyssop. Those who have committed spiritual adultery shall be pure virgins, ready for the second coming of the Lord. The Lord comes. He does not come in might or in glory, as we will hear about next week, but he comes in lowliness for our forgiveness, for our salvation. He comes in lowliness to save us. We were of the night. We used the works of darkness. And perhaps we have fallen into those sins once again. But take heart, dear Christian. This is why the Lord Christ has come in all lowliness. He comes not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This lowly coming is the time of faith. And may our Lord Christ during this time cause many to cry Hosanna and be saved. Amen. Amen.